Church family, we are in Leviticus chapter 26 this morning. And for those of you who may be visiting for the first time, we've been in Leviticus for a long time. Actually, I think we started this in January maybe, so like right at it, close to a year at least. Uh, but we are coming to the end. And we are in this morning Leviticus chapter 26 verses 3 through 39. I won't be reading it because we're going to go through it together and see what the Lord has for us there. But we all know here at this church that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, I dare not attempt this task without recognizing that I am completely dependent on You for me to say anything that would be helpful for Your people. Father, we together as a congregation, we desire to hear from Your word to understand it, to have our minds conformed by it. We desire to catch a greater glimpse of your Son, Jesus Christ, to understand better the depth of your love for us in Him, to mine the riches of the gospel. So, Lord, would you meet with us now? Would you open our minds and ears? Would you transform your people that through the proclaiming of your word, we might be more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ? We pray this in His holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're all familiar with the concept of consequences, right? I hope so. Really, what blessings and curses, it's kind of another way to talk about consequences. Uh, For instance, if we think of consequences in terms of a student, we recognize that if a student obeys their teacher by studying hard and doing all their homework, they can expect to be blessed in terms of good grades and success in school. On the other hand, if a student disobeys and refuses to study to do their homework, they can expect to be cursed, if I can put it like that. They will receive the consequences for their actions in the form of bad grades and failure. As citizens of the United States, we realize obeying the laws of our government brings us blessings in the form of peace and security. While disobeying the laws causes the curses of fear and imprisonment, even potentially, possibly death. Of course, as parents, we see it from the other side as well, don't we? We see better than our children that their response to our rules and instructions bring blessings or curses to their life. The fact of the matter is, blessings and curses are an inescapable part of the fabric of reality. We all experience them in every arena of life. We just don't refer to them as blessings or curses. We prefer to call them consequences. But when they're more directly related to our response to the instructions from the Lord, blessings and curses are actually appropriate terms to use. And that's really the big idea of our passage today. I don't have it listed in your notes, but it's the title of the sermon. It is about blessings for obedience to the Lord and curses for disobedience to the Lord. And I'll just say at this point, it's going to be very helpful for you. I know that we usually have the, the, the words of the scriptures on the screen, but if you would, hopefully you have your Bibles open, because it's going to be very helpful uh, for you to do this. Um, I'm going to encourage you to have your, your Bible open. I also am going to say at this point 
that it's helpful to realize that blessings and curses actually were a normal part of the covenant in the ancient Near East. Covenants, when made between two parties, as we've seen, would always include blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience to the stipulations held within the covenant. If you remember, the commands of the suzerain, which was whoever was the greater of the two making the covenant, they would need to be followed. And if they were not, the the lesser of the two making the covenant, otherwise known as the vassal, could expect to receive the curses laid out in the covenant at the end of the covenant. That's the same thing we find here in the book of Leviticus. And so, as closing portion of the covenant law contained within Leviticus, we have these blessings and curses. I want to look at those individually. And I'm going to move through this quickly, though I don't want to spend the majority of our time looking at the particularities of the blessings and curses. I want to spend more time considering what they mean. But I do want to show you, as we move through chapter 26, that really what you have in these blessings and curses is a mirror. You have the blessings of the Lord contained in the first portion, verses 3 through 13, and the reflection of that, or the reversal, contained in verses 14 through 39. So let's move through it quickly and allow me to show you what's there. First, in verses 3 through 5, we have the first blessing. And that is really the blessing of plenty. It's the blessing of plenty. I'm going to summarize it like that at least. But here the Lord promises that if you obey, you will receive land. And your land will produce crops. The trees will produce fruits. You will experience the blessing of plenty. You will have plenty. And each one of these blessings, they end with kind of a poetic summary of the blessing. And that's what we find in verse 5 of Leviticus 26. Look at that with me. It says, Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. In a word, plenty. In verses 6 through 8, we have another blessing listed here. We have the blessing... Of peace. Blessing of plenty and the blessing of peace. Not only will the Israelites experience the plenty of the Lord, but they will also experience peace. Verse 6 talks about peace, rest, and no fear. Because the Lord will remove the harmful beast and the sword will not go through their land. And then the poetic summary of that is found in verse 8 where it says... Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. In a word, peace. By the way, you may sense that there's a little bit of progression here, and, and there is. Basic needs being met in the plenty, that's a good thing. But even better than basic needs being met is peace from your enemies. And then... And then the Lord in the next section, verses 9 and following, affirms the covenant will be confirmed as a blessing for the obedience and faithfulness of Israel. And so, just to keep going, because we are Southern Baptist and alliteration is part of our DNA, I will continue with the P's and put the blessing of population here. A little bit of a stretch, but it works. That's why I got a thesaurus. Um, Population, blessing of plenty, blessing of peace, and blessing of population. So in verse 9, we see the fruitful, multiply, confirm the covenant. And then the poetic summary of that in verse 10, where it says, You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. They're going to grow large in number and then be a mighty nation. So you have plenty, peace, population. And then verses 11 through 12, you have the blessing of presence. This, the blessing of presence, is the pinnacle of covenant blessing. This is really what it's all about. The Lord will dwell with them. He will not abhor them. 
Really, it's just a way to say that he's going to love them. He's going to walk among them. He's going to be present to them. The poetic summary there is, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the fulfillment of the covenant. This is the point and purpose of Israel being called out of the nations. That they might belong to the Lord and that the Lord might be their God. We see in verse 13 that all of this, both the blessing and curses, are grounded in what is called the indicative. And that, that really just means that it's grounded in a statement of fact. It's not grounded in the imperative, which is a you must do in order to be in this relationship with the Lord. It's grounded in the indicative. Why are they to obey the Lord? Why are they to walk in His ways? Why are they to keep His statutes? Because He is the one who has redeemed them out of Egypt with His outstretched arm through mighty acts of judgment. He is the one who has brought His people to Himself. Because He has done that, that's a statement of fact. Therefore, they are to obey Him. They are to listen. They are to not ignore His commands or abhor His rules. Now in verses 14... And verse 15 is where the curses begin. Again, what we see is simply uh, the mirror of the blessings stated and listed out. And so, stage one, we see that the plenty promised is now removed. The plenty that was promised is now removed. You see as you read through it that the sky does not give its rain, the, the land does not give its crops, and the trees do not give its fruit. The peace that was promised is now removed in verses 21 and 22. So we have the plenty that was promised is now removed, and the peace promised is removed. No longer will the wild beast be removed. The Lord will actually loose them against Israel. That's in verses 23 through 26. No longer will the sword not go throughout the land, but instead the Lord himself will bring a sword upon you. No safety, no refuge. Stage three, I hope you're getting the point of your outline here and you can predict this. That population being fruitful and multiplying is now replaced with this disgusting picture of parents eating their children. Population promised is now removed. I got many questions in your reading this week about that, or really just more statements. And finally, the promise of the presence of the Lord is replaced with the Lord abhorring his people. Not receiving their sacrifices, desolating their land, and finally exiling him, them from his presence. So verses 36 through 39, they're, they're a review of the overview. That's what's here in the passage. You have the blessings, and then you have the curses. Blesses for obedience, curses for disobedience. But, but here's the question. As we read this as a new covenant family, what in the world do we make of this? How do we today rightly understand this? Because if we don't rightly understand it, then we simply cannot apply it to our lives. So in an attempt to help us rightly understand it, I want us to consider what the passage actually focuses on. And as we focus in on what the passage focuses on, we come to understand what the Lord would have us know and understand about this text. The first thing I would point out is the focus is on the corporate and not the individual. The focus is on the corporate, not the individual. In Leviticus 26... The focus is on the nation of Israel as a whole. It's the community, not each and every Israelite. Why in the world is that important? Well, for one, we can learn a lot about how we interpret our Bibles by this. I mean, listen, just as a direct application, we can be reminded that 
that our culture of individualism that you and I are raised in, it unavoidably tends to taint a lot of the way that we read the Bible. In fact, here's what I mean by this. If you're reading the Bible with every single you that's mentioned in the New Testament becomes a singular you, spoken directly to me, without any consideration of the plurality of you, that there is no y'all in the Bible, it's just the word you, there's a plural nature throughout many of those. Even in the nature of our salvation, there's a plurality in the you. But to hone it back really to what we're looking at here, this is addressing the nation of a whole. And I want you to think about that. If an Israelite, a singular Israelite, walked in the statutes in the Lord, observed His commandments, then he or she would be blessed individually. But when a nation as a whole walks in contradiction to the Lord's commandments, the curses come upon the nation. The the famine and plague that comes from no rain does not distinguish between the one who is faithful and the one who is unfaithful. When the Assyrians and Babylonians come into Israel, they do not distinguish between the one who is faithful and the one who is unfaithful. These blessings and curses are given corporately for Israel as a whole. In fact, we can actually think of many specific examples in the Old Testament. I, I just considered Jeremiah this week for an instance. Jeremiah, who lived in the days when Babylon was coming to Jerusalem. Jeremiah was faithful. I dare say he may be one of the most underrated, faithful people in all of the Old Testament. Yet as you read his account, Jeremiah did not experience the blessings of the Lord. Far from it. He was treated horribly by his people. And then he watched his own country ravished. His city, Jerusalem, was destroyed. And he ultimately was taken into exile. Not willingly, but forced to flee. I mean, read his account. Listen, Lamentations is a book he authored. Lamentations is not the proclamation of thanksgiving for the blessings of a faithful person. Lamentations is a lamentation of someone who has experienced the curses of the Lord because of the corporate unfaithfulness of Israel. And so let me suggest two very quick ways that this applies to us. First, like the individual Israelites, your day-to-day experience of the blessings of God are impacted by the sins of others. Your day-to-day experience of the blessings of God, they're impacted by the sins of others. It's not simply a consequence of your faithfulness and obedience. There is a corporate character to reality. To put it plainly, you don't live in a bubble. The sins of others impact us. The consequences that fall on those who rebel against the Lord and reject His rightful rule will often impact even the faithful. That might seem like a simple, even trivial truth, but I'm convinced that there could be no more pressing time for us to understand this in light of the day and age in which we live. The reality is we live in a nation that has rejected God in every possible way. And friends, there are consequences for living like that. And as a nation, there are consequences that you and I will experience because of that direction and the extremity of moral depravity that now has become so pervasive in our culture. Now, when we get swept up in the consequences of that very thing, let's not ask, where is God? Let's not ask, why is God being so unfaithful to me? I've lived so faithfully for Him. Why am I not being blessed? 
Friends, I hate to break it to you this morning, but you live in the midst of a horribly depraved nation. Prepare yourselves. Second, and this is closely related point to the first, not only is your day-to-day experience of the blessings of God impacted by the sin of others, but your sin, hear this, is never a private affair. Your sin is never a private affair. It's, it's simply not. The consequences of our sin will always impact others. Our sin brings hardship and hurt into the lives of those around us. So do not be deceived. I've counseled many people who in the midst of committing sin, after they've committed the sin, who'll come to me and just say, I, I never meant to hurt anybody. Friend, your, your constant, unrepentant, ongoing, continual sin is going to hurt people. It's guaranteed. So repent now. Not only does this passage focus on the corporate, not the individual, but secondly, I want you to know this. It it focuses on the faithfulness, not perfection. This passage is really a focus on faithfulness and not perfection. I spoiled this for our grow class this morning as we talked about this, but the focus is on faithfulness, not perfection. The Lord did not expect Israel to be perfect, but He did expect them to be faithful. There's a huge difference in that, by the way. Right? Remember, this is why the Lord so mercifully provided the sacrificial system or the Day of Atonement to cleanse Israel of sin. Because He didn't expect Israel to be completely and perfectly obedient to His law. And so He graciously made a way for them to be faithful. Think about it in terms of a marriage relationship. It's one thing to expect your spouse to be faithful. It's one thing to expect them to be perfect. Excuse me. It's quite another thing to expect your spouse to be faithful. Here's what I mean by this. Like your spouse, just using a personal example, constantly forgetting to pick up their towel might be annoying. But it's a far cry from your spouse having physical relationships with someone else, is it not? It's different. Listen, our relationship with God since the fall has always been dependent on faith and faithfulness, not on self-righteousness and perfect obedience. We need to know that and hear that. I'll say it again. Our relationship with God since the fall, since what we read this morning in our call to generosity, has always been dependent on faith and faithfulness, not on self-righteousness and perfect obedience. After the fall, this has always been the case. Now, if we don't see this then we have a hard time understanding a lot of the things that happen in Scripture. And here's the point. This was no less true for Israel. Now, I know what many of you are thinking now. In fact, I can see some of your brains moving. Don't get me wrong or misunderstand. The Lord requires perfect obedience. We know that from the Scripture. We've seen that as we move through Leviticus. That's what He demands. His holiness and justice required that of every last creature. But, and this is the point. Because of Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the perfection has always been imputed or credited to those who have faith in God and who evidence that faith in faithfulness. Always. So in other words, faith and repentance have always been the means of salvation. Always. I get this question all the time about uh, how are old covenant believers saved? Faith and repentance. That's how. 
from the fall forward, those who trusted God for their salvation and displayed that. For instance, in Israel offering the sacrifices, it, it recognizes their repenting of their sin. And what they did is hear this, they dipped into that bank account that was going to be filled when the Son of Man came in order to die on the cross for the sins of His people. And fill that account with this righteous, perfect obedience. We've considered this analogy before, but I'll remind you. Their faithfulness displayed through the sacrifices. It was like the writing of a check that the Lord God received and put over to the side. Not cashing it until Christ came. Their salvation is the same means as our salvation, faith and repentance. And this is no less true for Israel. Alright, so faithfulness, not perfection. It's built into the very system. It's why you have the sacrifices. Faithfulness is the focus, not perfection. Not only so, but discipline, not vengeance, is what's in focus here. Discipline is the focus, not vengeance. Now, I say that because the word vengeance, I believe, is actually mentioned in verse 25. It is, and certainly that's true. But the focus here is on discipline. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 18. Right in the middle it says, this, this word punish, but really carries with it the idea of discipline. It says, then I will punish you seven times more. In other words, I have discipline and I will discipline. In verses 23 and 28 it says the same thing. And three times he says explicitly this is discipline. Not only so, but, but other language throughout this communicates. When he says in verse 23... And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but the goal is a loving, kind, merciful, patient one. Here, the Lord in stages moves against his people in discipline. Not strictly in wrath, but discipline. Why? In order to cause them to repent of their sin and turn back to him. This this is the picture of the book of Judges. If you ever read the book of Judges, this very thing happens over and over again. The people become apostate. They reject the Lord. uh, They start collecting idols. And so this is what the Lord does. In discipline, He starts handing them over to their enemies. They become a yoke of slavery. And then they cry out to the Lord. Then they're sorry. The Lord delivers them. And then they reject the Lord again. And it just happens over and over again in a cycle. The point is, is that this is not simply justice. This is not simply God responding to sin and wrath. This is actually God's loving response to disobedience. It is an act of mercy and a display of great patience. We need to remember, church, the Lord still disciplines those whom He loves. We need to remember this. If if you are disciplined in your sin, that's that's a good thing. Why? Because it means the Lord still loves you. We talk about this with our children all the time. In fact, after every discipline, there's a conversation. I know that you don't experience this now, but I want you to know this is because I love you. This is actually a good thing for you. It is motivated by love. All right, finally, the last one. And this has really been a trick because you're looking at your outline right now and you're thinking, ha, one more, then it's time to go home. But this last point really could be a sermon in and of itself, and it probably is going to be the length of one. So I'm just going to lower that expectation for you. Just buckle in. We're not done yet. But you don't want to be done yet, right? You could be here all day, right? This is the word of the Lord. This is what you need. I know, I know, I know. All right, here we go. The focus here finally is broad, not narrow. The focus of this text is broad, not narrow. Let me explain what I mean by that. Leviticus 26 
you may not recognize this, but this is actually a foundational passage for all of Scripture. Did you know that? Everyone here needs to read and understand Leviticus 26 because it is absolutely foundational. These blessings and curses are at the very heart of humanity's relationship with God. In fact, this is bigger than Israel. Mankind was actually created for these blessings that are listed here. Mankind was created to experience the plenty of God, to be at peace with creation. Mankind and God himself to experience the presence of God, to be fruitful and multiply. These blessings are the blessings that were intended for all of creation. But but these were the very blessings that were lost when mankind fell into sin. You see, in these blessings, as you read through them, there are clear allusions to the Garden of Eden. The blessings of plenty in Leviticus 26 recall the variety of trees that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. The blessings of peace is the restoration of the peace that existed between man and beast and man and man in the Garden of Eden. The blessing of population recall instructions to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. The blessings of present echoes the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We hear that same language repeated and echoed in Leviticus 26. Similarly, the the curses are, are a repetition of the loss of plenty, peace, population, and significantly, the presence of God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden. But here's what's more. What's interesting is that the curses in Leviticus 26 not only echo forth from Eden... But they're picked up and become the very language of the Old Testament prophets as they proclaim impending judgment on God's people. There are so many here. And so do me a favor, just grab a concordance. If you don't know what that is, it's just a it's a tool related to help you find related verses. Grab a concordance and look at Leviticus 26 and you could just spend weeks on these verses. Uh, Those are only, by the way, the concordance only deals with direct quotations. Then you have to look for all of the allusions. And it would take you years to consider them all because it's everywhere. It's evasive. It's ubiquitous throughout scripture. Let me show you that. I want to look just at the example of Ezekiel, okay? Uh, let's start with a couple examples here. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 16. I believe this one will be on the screen. It is. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and with dread. Then look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 26. When I have cut off your supply of bread... Ten women shall bake your bread, and in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. It's the very same language. See, we often have a conception of of the prophets when they receive this vision from the Lord, they, they proclaim it like it comes out of thin air. That's not really the case. The Lord's simply reiterating what He's already said from the very beginning. And when He said, if you go this way, this is what will happen. If you go that way, that's what will happen. The prophets are, are come forward and say, if you go this way, this is what's going to happen. If you go that way, this is what's going to happen. Listen, it's not completely different from, from riding with your friend to work every day and the speed limit's 60 and he's going 75 miles per hour every single day. And, and you just simply say, man, you're going to get a ticket. You're going to get a ticket. You're going to get a ticket. Three days later, he gets a ticket and he goes, wow, you're, you're a prophet. <laughs> How did you know that? Because you're constantly breaking the law, right? I mean, it's only a matter of time, especially in the holiday season, right? 
More often, that's what we find in the prophetic books. Look again, Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 10. Here's another example. It says, this is the one we struggle with. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst. Sons shall eat their fathers. Verse 29 of our text. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. The Lord was simply speaking through His prophets to reiterate the curses that He had instituted as part of the covenant from the very beginning. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Again, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord, God. Thus says the Lord God of the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Then your altars shall be desolate, your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. That's that's verse 30 of our text. And listen, this is all helpful to know, but, but what's really incredible, and this is beautiful, is that those same prophets... As they looked to the horizon and saw the coming nations that the Lord said were going to make the land desolate. That were going to cast down their altars and idols, destroy their high places and waste their cities. As the prophets saw this, they then turned around and said, but you're going to have the blessing. Even so, you are going to have the very blessing promised in Leviticus 26. Think about this. In the midst of these nations coming to destroy you, the proclamation continues to go forth. You are still going to have the blessing. In fact, turn with me to Ezekiel. We're just going to have to go there. Ezekiel chapter 34. It's just one example of this. We're going to read a couple of these, I believe. Verses 25 through 27. Here it is. Remember the context. All this land desolate, all these curses displayed, but you're going to have the blessing. Look what it says in verse 25 of Ezekiel 34. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. There's the promise of peace right from Leviticus 26. Verse 26 I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers. To come down in their season, there shall be showers of blessing. There's the rain, blessing of plenty. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land. Don't you see it? Ezekiel is merely reiterating what was promised in Leviticus 26, but he's doing it in a time of great unfaithfulness. In in the very midst of the curse being delivered to God's people, he's proclaiming it will not always be so. So the question that should arise in our minds is, how can he do that? Well, we've got to look at one more before we move on. Ezekiel 36. This gives us this glimpse. Because what happens here is they don't just explain the blessings. But in fact, what the prophets do is they pick up the blessings and they expand them. They don't just say the land's going to be plentiful. They don't just say you're going to have peace. They don't just say you're going to be numerous and you're going to have the presence of the Lord. But listen to what they say. Leviticus chapter 36, starting in verse 26, and I'll read till I stop. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. Verse 35, So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Friends, I'm not making this stuff up. This is intentional. The Lord put this here so that you and I might rightly understand how we can perceive of our situation. So listen to this expansion here. God will not only deliver them from their enemies, but now the promise of blessing is He's going to deliver you from your own uncleanness. Not only does God promise fruitfulness for the land, but He promises the fruitfulness of His people. They will have a new spirit and a new heart. They will actually produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God will cause His people to obey. Not only will Israel be blessed, but the nations will see and say that this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. It's incredible. It's beautiful. The nations will look and they will know that there is a God in Israel. They will come to know the Lord themselves. And the reality is we could do this very same thing with the psalmist. We can find it in Proverbs. We could find it in historical narratives. It is everywhere. But here's what you need to understand before we conclude today. This picture of blessings and curses, it is not just for Israel. All of humanity is in covenant with God. There is no one in this room or no one who is ever born who has not been in relationship with God. And the reality is, you are either a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper. The blessings and curses, as they echo back to Eden, they remind us what man was created for. Man was created for that blessing. It was their very purpose of the creation of humanity. That they might experience the plenty of the Lord and give Him thanks. That they might experience peace with all creation between man and man with God Himself. And more than that, enjoy the presence of God forever and ever. We were created initially for that glory of the Lord. That it might fill the entire earth. That Adam and Eve would be fruitful and multiply. Not just expanding in population, but expanding the worship of God to all of the earth. And we lost all of that in the fall. The curse we read in Leviticus 26 is nothing less than the curse that simply hangs over all of humanity every second of every day. It's the curse we see in the news. It's the curse we see in our nation. It's the curse we see around the world. A curse in present and small ways. But the reality of which, when it finally comes crashing down, is like a huge tsunami. In fact, it's like a huge tsunami that's simply suspended over us, kept back for the moment until Christ, who has brought all who belong to Him in. And we have to recognize that that curse is the curse that we deserve. 
We've not been obedient. The reality is apart from the regeneration and working of the Holy Spirit in us, we've not even been faithful. So we talked about it's not about perfect obedience, but faithfulness. But let's be honest. Is there a soul in here that could say on merit alone that you've been faithful? We have outright rebelled and rejected God apart from Christ. We deserve to have no plenty, no peace, no presence. We deserve to have the curse fully placed upon us. But instead, we go to Galatians 3 and we read the words of Paul. and We celebrate where it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's what Christ did. He understood Leviticus 26, and so he fulfilled the one side perfectly, and in doing so, merited all the blessings that are offered to the obedient. And then he steps over and offers himself up to receive all of the curses that were merited by our disobedience. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. Because as it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Don't miss this. That promised Spirit, it is the pinnacle of the blessings offered to God's people. It's not just God dwelling in the land. It is God dwelling with us, in us. If you're a Christian this morning, you've received that. We who deserve the curse have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In fact, didn't we do this last week, turn the revelation at the end? Let's go ahead and turn the revelation at the end. We've got to see it. Revelation 22. And we'll close with this. In Christ, we've received the deposit of our inheritance, the down payment of that blessing. We have God dwelling in us, yet we know as we continue to navigate in our lives through a world covered with that sin, that there is a day, as Isaac Watts said in the song we often sing, that the curse will be removed far as the curse is found. And friends, we long for that day. We long for it, don't you? So I close with a picture of that day in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand as we close with a word of prayer this morning? Gracious Father, we are, I fear, often guilty of thinking so little of our redemption. When we read the curses in Leviticus 26 and consider that they are merely a temporal picture of a far greater torment and reality. We recognize that we have much reason to give thanks 
For we have been rescued from that by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Not only have we been rescued, but we've been brought into every spiritual blessing. Though we have not inherited it all yet, we know it is an inheritance in heaven and cannot be taken away. Father, my prayer is that you would help us live into that reality even now. That you would help us to be a fruitful people. That you would help us to respond in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this song of response now. Thank you, church. You, you may be seated. As we come to the conclusion of our service, we also come to the time of invitation. And that is a clear encouragement for you this morning for the, the people of God that we would recognize, um, yes, we live in the midst of this world that is experiencing its curses, but we have the blessing of God because we have His presence among us. That we would live and strive, that we'd be filled with hope in the midst of everything that's going around us. That is not the time for doom and gloom. It is the time of faithfulness and awaiting our Savior's return. That we would long to be with Him more and more. We would be more intentional about living that out day to day. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not even sure if you have a relationship with the Lord. Well, as you've heard from the sermon, you actually do. And, and if it's not one by faith, then it's one that is, is of rebellion. And that's because God has created all things. And, and man is actually the chief of all His creation. Man was purposed, as we've seen, to bring honor and glory to God, to have uh, that plenty, that peace, and expand the population in the presence of God. But we've rejected that good and righteous rule of God by instead uh, wanting to be gods of ourselves. That's why we do the things we do. You are born with a sinful nature that thinks of yourself as the center of the universe. And because of that, uh, you attempt to give glory to the thing that God has created instead of the Creator Himself. And that is breaking God's law. And in doing that, you have earned his righteous wrath because he's judge of all the earth and he is just. You've committed treason against the most high king and apart from someone coming and paying your debt, you are owing uh, the God of all creation an eternal debt which you cannot pay. So there would be no hope for you if the story was finished there. But the beautiful thing of the gospel was that God in His love and grace and mercy sent forth His Son, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. It's what we celebrate in the Christmas season, the arrival, the advent of that one who would come and be born as a baby. Jesus Christ would go on to live a perfect life, never sinning against His Father. The two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There wasn't a moment in Jesus Christ's life where He did not fulfill those things and live them perfectly. Therefore, he, being a perfect God-man, earned a righteousness, earned a standing with God in his perfection that you and I can never do because of our sin. And yet, even so, he willingly took upon the punishment that you and I deserved. That's right, he died on the cross. And on the cross, what God the Father did is he poured out his righteous wrath against his son for the sins that you and I have committed and gave everyone who would repent and believe on him the perfect standing of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Not one of their own, but one that covers them in the blood, the sacrifice of his son. The good news of the gospel, though, is that he didn't stay dead. He resurrected from the grave. Showing that the sacrifice was approved and accepted by the Lord. And that now, those who repent of their sins and trust in Him, they've defeated the enemy in Christ, with Christ. And that is the great enemy of death. Because of Christ, you have eternal life forever. So that's, that's a great message. But again, how do we attain this? We, 
we, very easily, we repent. That is, we acknowledge that, that we have been serving ourselves and we turn our eyes toward not serving ourselves, but our Creator. We declare that we are no longer in charge of our own lives, but Christ is our King. And, and yes, if you're a Christian, you will do that every day. Why? Because you still have to train yourself. You've lived with this flesh for so long, it's almost natural for you to, to come back and serve yourself. And so you're constantly having to repent and turn away from your sins. But, but when you once and for all repent, you, you're acknowledging that Christ is your King and you desire to follow Him. So you repent, but you also believe. That is, you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that it was enough for your sins, that you recognize that your good works now are out of love for your Savior, not to earn a salvation which has already been purchased for you in Christ. So if you've never done that, if you've never simply called upon the name of the Lord and have been saved, the beauty of the gospel is you can do that right now. You can simply acknowledge your sinfulness before a holy God, believe in the message of the gospel that was just explained to you, and live this life faithfully, trusting Him every day in a community of believers. And so if you're here this morning, that's something you want to do, that you want to receive the Lord in this way, then I want you to know, I'll be down front. I'd love to talk with you this morning of what that looks like, how you can today have a relationship with Christ. But church family, as we continue to live with Christ in His presence, let us remind ourselves that we long for His return, we understand the brokenness of this world, and because of Christ, we will have the promise of plenty, peace, population, and the presence of God for all of eternity sealed in our lives. Let's live as if that's so.